You were created, beautiful you, and there are no ugly parts because you are loved in Christ. And when we think about most of our parts, our hair and our eyes, most of us can reflect and see that we were created unique and beautiful in our own special way. And of course, when I say nose and chin, a few of us that are listening might wish that our nose or chin were maybe a shape a little bit different than what we see in society or what we compare ourselves to others. But for the most part, we can appreciate how wonderfully and beautifully made we are in our own intricacies. Until we come to this one area, we do this thing with every word surrounding anything around our hips and our pelvis. I've been a pelvic floor physical therapist for 18 years, and I get the pleasure to use a lot of words like pee and poop, penis, vagina, words that don't generally roll right off the tongue. That is where people cover their mouth, their eyebrows raise, because they are words that have social stigma with them. But nothing is taboo. And today, this is a safe space. If you're listening in a group, know that no question is silly, and this is a safe space to share and absorb information. Know that anytime if you're in a group listening to this podcast, it's okay to leave. If something triggers you or something doesn't sit right with you, that's okay. Because you're loved and we want to make sure that this is a safe space for you. One of the most common diagnoses that we see in pelvic floor physical therapy is pelvic pain. And it is a diagnosis that covers a lot of different areas. It covers urology, it covers gynecology and obstetrics, colorectal conditions and GI issues. It spans so many important and vital organs in our body. And it shows up in people who are Olympic athletes as well as our recreational desk jockeys. It doesn't discriminate between age. We see it in our young pelvic floor pediatric patients, all the way up into those that are further away from our youth. But the one thing that we see in common is that at least 60% of people with pelvic floor pain issues have abuse in their history. And I think this number is underreported because this doesn't include trauma. Abuse is always trauma, but trauma isn't always abuse. Sometimes trauma can be a medical decision that we didn't get to make about this area. It could be a hysterectomy and the loss of our womanhood and motherhood. It could be that we've had chronic pain in this area and no one and no provider seems to be able to figure out the why or the how to help us. These failed diagnoses, failed treatments, and negative connotations can be traumatic. And when we have trauma, it's easy to get it triggered. Sometimes it's just a word. And if we do trigger your trauma today, know that it's okay to leave and that this is a safe space because you are loved. Now, when we talk about the clitoris, testicles, and foreplay, right now I can almost see some of you levitating off your seat. You're clenching your glutes, tightening your muscles to protect this area. And that's what happens over time, because our muscles have memory. But negative connotations 
don't lead towards positive results. Let me repeat that. Negative connotations don't lead towards positive results. Let's use an example. Think about your elbow. If you're in a group today, sitting around listening to this podcast, everybody hide your elbow. Do not let me see or anybody in the room with you see your elbow because elbows are dirty and wrinkly and disgusting. In fact, the word elbow doesn't even sound positive. Let's just call your elbow your hum-hum. And if every time I tell you to think about your hum-hum, I want you to make sure that you don't ever show your hum-hum to your group around you or in public. Make sure you never put your hum-hum anywhere on the table because your hum-hum is always dirty. Tuck it behind your back even more. And now, for the first time, I want you to bring your elbow out. Show the group if you're with a group today. And show us your elbow. But because we've talked about your elbow in a negative way, repeated negative connotations can cause a social stigma around that anatomy part, even though it's just an anatomy part. So I'm here today to talk with you and walk with you on how we can actually create an environment both for ourselves and for our sons and daughters for a positive, healthy relationship with all of their anatomy parts. We've got 200,000 lever parts, and we need to set them up for a successful, healthy, intimate relationship when they're ready. Too often in my pelvic floor profession, we see that because our own Christian beliefs and our own social stigmas that we were brought up with around this area, when women are ready to consummate their marriage, then they have pain. And if we're clenching those muscles every single time we talk about sex, if we say we can't talk about those things at the dinner table, if we tell you to keep your legs together and squeeze your knees together so that your skirt doesn't show anything, we can create muscle memory in those muscles. And because we do this, it's not setting up our sons and daughters for successful marriage and intimacy. This hardwiring happens of the pelvic floor muscles. And we want our sons and daughters to make the best decisions they can regarding their own sexuality. And we want to know that we can give them the right information so they can make those choices when the choices come. And I'm guessing most of us are not going to be there when it's time for those choices to be made. But we hope we have given them enough valuable knowledge and education that they can make the right decisions because shame and guilt for abstinence promotion may not be the best way and can influence long-term pain in the very children that we love and we want to have an intimate have an intimate relationship when they get older. So we need to show our children they are loved and that they have no ugly parts. Statistics say that if you don't talk to your children about sex, if they learn about sex and sexuality and their bodily functions from someone else at school, they are more likely to go to that person when something actually really matters. We can start this at a very early age because we want them to come to us when the time comes for the big questions. We can start it as early as when we start talking about their parts. We can call a vagina a vagina. We can call an elbow an elbow. And we can call a penis a penis. 
Sexual perpetrators are more likely to perpetrate on children who have nicknames for anatomy parts because they know that those children don't have a relationship to talk in a healthy environment with an adult safety network. A child who can use the word vagina is more likely to have been well-educated by their parents, and perpetrators know that, that they have a good relationship with their parents. So let's talk about it. In order for us to be comfortable to talk to our own children, we need to be able to talk about it ourselves. I need you to put your own oxygen masks on first. So we have to be comfortable enough in our own skin to say these words that have had social stigmas for us for a long time. If you're by yourself in a car, listening on a run, or if you're in a group, I want you to turn to a partner. And the first thing I want you to do is say clitoris penis foreplay. Clitoris penis foreplay. Repeat that five times to your partner. And now roles have to change. So have your partner repeat it to you. Try not to fluctuate your voice so that the words become familiar for you to say them. So we've normalized the words. The next thing we need to do is normalize body functions. Bodily functions are something that we should not shame or talk about negatively. I'll give you some examples, and then I want you to either, if you're by yourself, think about one way that you could change and correct where you're not going to shame or talk about these bodily functions negatively, or you can turn to a partner and tell them as well. Some examples in our house are, it could be farting. When our child has to pass gas, we don't laugh about it. We don't snicker about it. And what we don't say, oh my goodness, that's so gross. What we do say is, wow, I'm so glad your body was be able to let that go. I'm sure your tummy must feel so much better now. When my kids used to have a pee or poop mishap, we don't call them accidents in our house. Think about the last time you got in a car accident. It was someone's fault. It had a negative connotation. Think about if your child has an accident on the playground and breaks their arm. Likely it was someone's fault. And so the word accident also has a negative connotation. The word mishap to a child who's just learning how to listen to the signals of their bowel and bladder can really be supported by just saying, it's just a mishap because it just happened. And then we can normalize it by saying, that's no big deal. Your body just didn't know that your bladder balloon was full. Did you know that happened to me when I was little too? And when we talk about bodily functions of peeing or having a bowel movement, how many of you do this thing called just in case peeing? You know, like, we're going to leave the house. I better just go just in case. Oh, I got stalled by another 15 minutes. I better go just in case. Just thinking about having to go to the bathroom and saying, do you have to go? Do you have to go? Is not giving our children 
control over really important bodily functions. And we want to teach them that they are in control of this area. One of the ways we do this in our household is for our young three, four, five toddler years, we say, you know what? We're going to leave the house. I want you to check into your bladder balloon. And we can honor if their body doesn't have to go to the bathroom by saying, check in with your bladder balloon. We're going to be gone for the length of a TV show. Or we're going to be gone for the length of what it takes for us to play Monopoly. Would you like to go to the bathroom before we leave? Or when we get there? This does two things for them. Number one, kids love love and logic principles where they get to make a choice between two things. And you still get what you want because they're going to go to the bathroom at one of those times. But it lets them learn to get their signal of their bladder. And it also normalizes public restrooms and lets them know if their bladder balloon isn't ready before we leave, that it's okay and it's safe for them to go when we get to our location and our destination. It's good for our child to have a sense of time so that they can check in and see if their bladder is full or not. And it gives them permission to have control. If a child is going to the bathroom, we typically, both adults and children, should be able to go to the bathroom and hold it for three to four hours. This is normal bladder function. If they get an urge, they should, as they grow older, be able to hold it for up to 30 minutes. And that's us too. But when it comes to bowel movements, because they're too embarrassed to go in a public restroom, sometimes they'll hold it or they get fearful of the toilets because there might be too many germs, and they hold it, the signal goes away after 10 minutes. And so we do need to have our children and ourselves find a restroom within 10 minutes of having a bowel urge. Now, how many kids hold it all day at school? And what happens is the bowels which are down in the rectum, which give us a sense of if it's liquid, solid, or gas, get pushed back up into the intestines, or for kids, we call this the poop tubes. And more water gets extracted out, which means the next time their bowel comes down, it could be hard, painful to pass, and our pelvic floor muscles tense up when we have to have a painful bowel movement. Do this repeatedly over the years, and you can see why this can create pelvic pain in the future. I see kids in our profession, and fast forward 10 years down the road, now they can't insert a tampon because it's painful. They can't have a speculum exam because it's painful, and eventually they can't have intercourse when they decide the time is right. The things we do for our children now matter for their overall intimacy and sexual health long-term. And while I'm giving healthy ideas with our children, I also did this because I want us all to reflect on our own childhood patterns. Because if we cannot get things in, speculum exams, penises, tampons, then we can't get things out like constipation. We may have created a muscle memory of the muscles that are too tight, that are on guard all the time. If you look at the attachment that was um, provided for you with this podcast, you can see the muscles look like a figure eight around the vaginal opening 
and the anal opening. This is the same for men. They have almost the same anatomy. Theirs just goes around a figure eight around the penile, penile shaft and around the rectum. But the muscles, you can see, they look like a guardian of the vagina. You can see a circular one. And if we teach those muscles not to let anything in, then this is what happens and we can get pain. If you're at home or even if you're in a group, if you know what the muscle Kegel is called or a pelvic floor muscle, that's where we contract the muscles. A lot of times people have heard you should con contract the muscles at a stoplight or you should try and stop your pee. We don't recommend that you try and stop your pee because that can cause a urinary tract infection. The best cueing for your pelvic floor is actually to hold in a fart or try not to pass gas for women. If you close those muscles, you should feel kind of a lift up towards your nose and you should feel the openings close. This is important for continence, but also we have to be able to get those muscles to relax for the things I mentioned before, like speculums and tampons, intimacy and bowel movements. To see if your muscles can do this, you can either just think about it or you can place one hand on your tailbone right where the bowel comes out over your pants, even in your gr small groups. You can take a breath in and as you breathe into your belly, I want you to think about opening your rectum. As you take your next breath in, you're going to open that rectum and make your belly hard and push gently. If you don't feel your hand or if you're not touching that area to see, if you don't feel those muscles come down to the actual seat that you're sitting on, those muscles might be too tight and the muscle memory may have caused those muscles to tighten up. This is actually even how we teach women to have babies now is to go belly in, belly hard. Take a breath in, let your belly open, let the rectum open, make the belly hard. I see at least 50 women a year in my clinic that their story resonates that pelvic pain has become longstanding. And it becomes a layer of their story, but it doesn't have to define us. Once given the space and opportunity to talk about why speculum exams or intimacy or constipation, they, we find that a lot of people have learned to not even touch this area, and we don't know how to take care of our perineal health or even our hygiene in that area. And we don't feel comfortable enough to do things in intimacy that even stimulate the tissues and lubricate the tissues to help us enjoy our sexual experience. On that note, we often don't take time to do 20 minutes of foreplay. You see, we have the same erectile tissue in our system as men. Theirs is just on the outside and ours is on the inside. And just like they need blood flow to get an erection, we also need blood flow to bring to our clitoris for us to have good lubrication and be ready for intimacy. 20 minutes of foreplay. You can uh, broadcast that to all of your friends and broadcast that to your partners um, because it's really important. And if you're having pain during 
entry or during the initial part of intercourse, doing that taking a breath in, belly out, kind of bearing down slightly, opening the rectum can really allow that you can have pain-free intercourse if that's just what it is. If you have pain after intercourse, oftentimes that comes if we haven't had an orgasm, all of that great blood flow goes down into that area and doesn't get to get taken out from the muscle contractions. So doing some of those Kegels that we practice of closing the rectum repeatedly can help whisk away some of that blood flow and take away any achiness that you might have afterwards. As far as cleaning, the vagina, well, it's a self-cleaning oven. It doesn't require special soaps. It needs one inch of hair to wick away moisture. Pads are great at wicking away moisture, and many of us wear them either for incontinence purposes or just to feel fresh. But pads are also good at wicking away your natural moisture. So if you have to use a pad for incontinence purposes, making sure that you either use some type of Vaseline You can put that over the outside of your tissues to just kind of keep as a natural emollient and keep your tissues nice and healthy. Shave gels and body washes are not something we need to use in the perineum or the pelvic area. Some of them, if you turn them around, will have propylene glycol in them, which guess what? It's antifreeze. We do not want to be putting antifreeze down there. So some of our pelvic pain can come from our skincare. Some we've heard can come from the muscles. Yoga pants, which is what all of us are living in these days with our stay, stay at home and shelter um, restrictions, they don't give the vagina a space to breathe. And wiping is always front to back, which I cannot tell you how many people still don't know this. So there are these muscular components, there's cleaning purposes, We also can have pain that's coming from scar tissue. And so if we've had an episiotomy with any deliveries or we've had a cesarean delivery, sometimes the scar restrictions can also cause some of your pain. And if your pain is with movement, when you get up and go do things and are active, sometimes that's more of a muscular component of how to get your core stronger. You can see this area has a lot jam-packed into it. But we're going to go back to talking about shame and negative connotations and chronic pain. Because when chronic pain happens for more than three months, there's this little funny spot in our brain called the amygdala. Pain is only meant to be in our body as an alarm. If something is wrong, like I step on a nail, the pain is there to tell me to tend to the area, make sure it's okay, and then the pain actually starts to dissipate and go away. But if that pain stays around for after three months, that pain gets wired in your brain. This is called neurotagging. We've neurotagged a lot of things. I've neurotagged my grandma. When I think of her, I can remember how she walked, how she hugged, how she sang the old rugged cross in church. My brain neurotagged grandma. And the brain also neurotags pain. So just some light touch on the pelvic area might make it hurt if we've had pain over and over and over because the body mixes up the signal. And right next to this little thing in the amygdala called our brain 
anything can trigger the amygdala. If I'm walking along in the jungle and imagine I see something in the bushes, it's either a lion or it's something or someone to procreate with, excuse me. Either way, our body is going to stimulate our sympathetic nervous system, our heartbeat's going to go faster, our blood would pump to areas it needs to pump to so that I could do fight, flight, or freeze. But this little amygdala that controls fight and flight sits right next to its neighbor in your pain center. And that pain center can get triggered just by stressors. So anything can trigger pain, and pain can trigger us to be anxious. The two literally go hand in hand after my pain has been there for a while. And we can break that neurotagging with slow movements and exposures that aren't painful. So as a generality, we need to show our body we're loved. We need to create positive neurotags. If intimacy is painful, we need to have pain-free experiences because we don't want to trigger the amygdala and we don't want to wake the sleeping lion. So often we hear if we have pain with intimacy, we should just have another glass of wine or just bear through it. But those are creating negative neurotags. We want to take this slow and you want to make sure that they're only positive reinforcements. You can build a great team with a counselor, with a sexual therapist, and with a pelvic physical therapist, as well as your MD, and have a great team to make sure that you can get pelvic pain under control. Now together, we need to stop the silence and talk about things all women need to know. We can only elicit change and growth if we have the willingness to be able to talk about these difficult things. We need to stop shushing, and there are a lot of myths out there. Like I said, intercourse should never be painful. We don't just need a glass of wine to loosen up. And if pain is there for a reason, we need to figure out why. We need to stop just-in-case peeing because the bladder wants to fill up for three to four hours before it sends a signal to our brain, which uses the bladder to help empty. And I hate to tell you, We need to sit down on the seat when we pee, because if you hover over the seat, you are contracting your pelvic floor muscles while they're supposed to be doing an action that makes them relax. Put toilet paper down, but teaching them to hover mixes up the signal. They get confused. If you feel heaviness in this region, if you have to push up to empty your bladder or bowels or have to wiggle around on the toilet to empty, you may have something that's called a prolapse. And 85% of prolapses don't need surgery. We can simply fix them usually by muscles and some activity modifications. And another myth, we should never leak. We should be continent at any age. Yes, our grandmothers told our mothers that everybody leaks and our mothers told us that everybody leaks, but continence is the number one reason people get admitted to a nursing home because nobody wants to deal with other people's pee and poop. So let's talk about it with our moms and our friends and our daughters so we can prevent it. Usually it's just a couple simple strengthening exercises like you learned earlier. Another myth is that if you've had children, all moms leak. But having a baby doesn't mean to ha- mean that you're going to have to leak. 
47% of women have some pelvic floor trauma to their muscles, but you can fix that by doing strengthening exercises. All moms have to use pads is another myth. And we don't want to miss out on life. Trampolines, let's go get them. Intimacy, we should spend all of our money on a solution instead of band-aids. And lastly, like I said, skincare, remember we don't want any antifreeze. Some of the questions that I have heard come up when I was talking about this talk to some people was they said, why am I having pelvic pain after the change? The change or menopause happens from 35 to 50, as early as the age of 35. And we don't plummet like Thelma and Louise off a cliff did at the end of the movie, but our hormones gradually decrease. If the skin is hurting, burning, looking red and irritated, consult with your GYN might be warranted. And often topical estrogen can help. That topical estrogen helps plump up the tissue and bring some vitality to the tissue. This is also the reason why sometimes we say, I had babies and I didn't have any leakage, but as I got closer to menopause, I started leaking. Because that same estrogen plumps up the tissues and the muscles down there, which help clamp off the urethra. Lubrication is something that also goes down with the change. Lubrication during intercourse can be really effective, and water-based lubrication is good for use with condoms. There's actually people who study lubrications. They're called lubrarians, believe it or not. And they found that lubrications, as we get towards menopause, either silicone or oil-based are usually preferred. And we want to insert it so that it's not just wiped off when we have penetrative intercourse. So don't just put it on the outside. And by the way, you can apply it up to 45 minutes before, so you don't have to stop in the middle of any good parts. The other thing people ask about is GI issues during the pelvic change and how they influence pain. And our GI system has lots of receptors for estrogen. So one of the things that can be really helpful to avoid constipation, because there's only so much room in the house when you think about my belly. If I'm constipated, that can cause a lot of pelvic pain. And as we move further away from our youth, our GI system cannot tolerate as many foods. In fact, they suggest more of a Mediterranean-based diet because estrogen has such a huge role in our gut. And this can give GI pains and more issues. And if you're worried about cancer, eating those green leafy vegetables that are fork tender helps give you some natural phytoestrogens, which are protective against some of our cancers. Another one I have common is everyone comes in and they say, my mom has pelvic cancer. I'm fearful that my pelvic pain is coming from that and I'm fearful I could have it too. Now, regular checks with your GYN are important with a family history like this, but both for women and men, men for testicular cancer, one of the best things we can do to prevent cancer in the, in the pelvis area is to do a regular skin check because skin changes are the first thing we notice that can clue us into some of our gynecological cancers and testicular cancer. Now, for men, this is easy. They touch that area 10 times a day, right? 
typically when they're using the restroom. But for women, we oftentimes go months without touching this area. So getting to know what it looks like using a mirror can be really valuable and something to teach your daughters so that they can continue to monitor and, and watch for some of those cancers that happen when they're in their earlier youth. Now, pain can be one-sided, and if it is, it could be more muscle or nerve. If it's both sides, I'd be thinking about if that pain is more skin. And if it's coming from movement, remember, we think it might be more muscle-related. And if your muscles are too tight, a signal can be you can't get things in and you can't get things out. So in summary of pelvic pain... Our parts are beautiful, and we have an opportunity to change the social connotations of these parts, because just like I can say an elbow, just like I can say a hip, we should be able to say the word vagina. Pain can come from the skin, the muscles, the bones, your bladder, your GI system, how we take care of the tissues, and from our brain centers called the amygdala. But remember, nothing should hurt, and we can have vital intimacy and no leakage in our years that are further from our youth. And remember, you are loved for all of your 2,000 parts. I'm Jessica Dorrington. I'm a physical therapist at Therapeutic Associates Bethany Physical Therapy. I'm so thankful you've listened in on some really important topics that we can take to the next level and break the social stigmas. If you want to reach out to me, my email is jessicad at taipt.com. That's jessicad at taipt.com. If you're in the Portland area, we'd be happy to help you navigate any of this. If you're outside the Portland area, I have tons of colleagues globally and internationally that I can connect you with. So just email me and I can help you find the best pelvic floor resource for you to help navigate these things. Thanks for listening and see you next time.